my friends. Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 256, and baby, does it seem to finally feel like fall. Wow, I think that was a poem. Who knew it? But uh, yesterday morning, I went outside. I'm like, I'm going to go back in and get a sweatshirt. And for the first time, already into October, it finally starting to, to feel just a smidge, a smidge, like it's actually autumn outside, which is great because I love that time of year. Uh, I'm a fan of turning leaves and the, the cool comes in, that bite in the morning. All of that is just kind of one of my favorites. Uh, and so I'm happy to be in this space, though. I'm looking at my weather app and it's already showing like, hey, we're going to fall out of fall for a little bit. It looks like, and then maybe we'll fall back into fall again. So anyway, at this point, you're like, okay, he said fall and autumn enough times. I'm done with it because it's not my time of year. Well, it's my time of year. So let me celebrate a little bit. So, uh, not the topic of the day, though. That is not the thing that I wanted to talk about today. Um, I know we're kind of going into a really unique season. Uh, again, it seems like anytime we go into some political-oriented season, the podcast can kind of shift around some of those things. Uh, because if there's anything I, I, I think more and more, it's that uh, politics is more the conditioner of our ethical standard and our theology than probably the Bible and kind of kind of historic orthodoxy. Like, like as I continue to look at all of the polling data and I look at all the different little things that they're doing, like what do Christians believe today and everything else? Um, it seems that more and more, that's kind of the thing. It's like, Hey, are we have an enemy and it's not, the devil and it's not sin and it's not death. We have an enemy and it's the political other side of our belief system. In fact, even this morning I was watching the news and uh, they were uh, kind of doing a little of uh, like a little segment on a new dating app that's out there. And I think it's called the right stuff or the right way or the right something. Anyway, it's a dating app for people that are political conservatives. And it was just talking about, you know, like how much, having a partner that agrees with you politically is one of the most critical things that people look for today in looking for a partner, both on the left and on the right. And I thought it was interesting that as I've been a pastor for now three decades, I've seen increasingly where people marrying other people and religious affiliation being the primary driver has dropped. So it's kind of like, it doesn't matter if they're a Christian or whatever else, you know, they're a Catholic, they're a Mormon, they're nothing, they're Buddhist, they're, you know, it's almost like a Jewish, you know, whatever it was, it was like, you know, if we're compatible in all these other things, we can make it work depend our irrespective of our religious preferences. Um, but now the political preference is kind of like what used to be the religious preference and what used to be the religious preference was kind of a lesser issue in why people decide to marry. So all the more it just reminded me of here's this, uh, you know, kind of conservative platform for dating. And the big idea there is, do we align politically even more than do we re align religiously? And so it just all the more kind of got me thinking about how oftentimes the reason I'm dealing with kind of things of politics or things that have political nuances to them in the podcast, especially on the Everyday Missionary Podcast, is just because I do think uh, political orthodoxy is now the new theology, uh, and it is something that whether we intend to or not, it's kind of getting baked into our worldview cake in such a way that it's very tough to segregate out, you know, what is, again, what I think is a political ideology and what do I think is kind of a Christian ideology, or what happens is that it gets overlaid. Christian ideology gets overlaid with political ideology, and we think they're one and the same, and that's kind of the danger. And then from that, we begin to think that our our ability or our tactics to be missionaries within our culture flows out of that kind of political persuasion. 
more than it does a Jesus-oriented kingdom persuasion. And that's the thing I continue to see more and more. I see like these battles that are getting fought, and they're getting fought more in worldly, earthly ways in the name of Jesus, but in earthly, worldly ways, more than trying to do it in the way that the New Testament articulates for us to do those things. And that's sort of the topic today. And it's going to come in a strange kind of way. This is one of those things I've been fiddling with in the back of my head for a while. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it this week, which it's going to seem a little bit odd on the surface because, you know, maybe you're not of this persuasion. I don't know. But it's something that I've watched over the last year gain a certain level of momentum and steam in certain parts of the country. I think probably less so here in the Pacific Northwest, just because of the fact that we live in a corner of the world here, at least, that already is dominated by a more liberal vision or a liberal worldview. And so I think trying to put pressure on that liberal worldview is already difficult, right? So I don't think we saw the the same kind of groundswell here. Maybe more on the east side of Washington State, the east side of Oregon, things of that nature. Certainly going into Idaho, you'd see it more, that kind of thing. But it's this whole idea of of kind of like idea control, right? Um, in other words, we live in a, a kind of a basically a classic liberal kind of system. As the United States, it's classical liberalism in the regard of its democracy. It's this idea of individual freedom to some degree. We believe in the transfer of free, open ideas and words. That's why a First Amendment is what it is. It's it's kind of like this idea of liberté, right? Like that's kind of what classic liberalism was. And that's sort of been our world. But when you have that world, there are also ideas that can be threatening to your ideas. And when you have threatening ideas there are different ways that we want to approach how you try to conquer the the opposing ideas, right? And one of the ways that that, that has been kind of dealt with here, in, I mean, I've, I remember it for my entire life, I've seen outcroppings of this happen at different times, um, all the way back to the 80s when I was a student in school. I saw this would happen at some level more from uh, religious uh Places of religious conviction. But it's the idea of like, we want to limit ideas by banning ideas. So we either want to ban ideas by way of books or we want to ban ideas by way of banning curriculums or whatever it might be. And so kind of the popularity of the book banning, the book burning, the the curriculum controlling, the curriculum banning, the going to a city council, going to a the school student council, a school board council, whatever it is, and and saying, "Hey, we want to push that this theater can't be in town, this bookstore can't be in town, or these books can't be in this school library, this curriculum can't be taught in this high school forum or whatever else." Like that whole notion is something I've been thinking about more, but through a Christian grid. And I'm thinking about that maybe more in the last year because I've seen that kind of in the rise of popularity where there have been parents coming to school boards and wanting to ban critical race theory curriculum from being taught or wanting to ban certain uh, sex education curriculum from being taught in the public school or wanting to ban certain books from being in public school libraries or even to ban certain books from being in public libraries, you know, which again, I think in some parts of the country, it's a little bit easier to try to pull that off than in other parts of the country. But I was thinking about all of this and I was thinking about how that approach, and I'm not wanting to create a legalistic law that says that approach is always wrong or bad or whatever else, but I think it might be like this efficient and ineffective way to dealing with the problem, 
from a from a from a missionary Christ-centric perspective, right? If you're just talking about pure efficiency, yes, it's always easier just to remove something and say it's excised and be done and move on with it. But I don't think that is actually what best facilitates both kingdom advancement, and I don't think it it facilitates critical thinking among those you're trying to protect, right? I think the better route is certainly a more difficult route. It requires much more attention, much more focus, much more engagement, much more investigation, much more learning. I I think that's true. But I think if we're trying to think in terms of bettering the next generation, I think sequestering ideas or just cordoning them off so that they don't have to interact with those just kicks the can down the road. And it may kick the can just far enough down the road that when they interact with it, they haven't been equipped with the tools to really interact with it as well as they could. And the very system that we're trying to ensure, which is protection, may backfire, and we see people embracing ideas that they maybe would not have embraced had we not waited so long to expose them to that idea. I don't know if that made a lot of sense. I hope it made some level of sense, but let me see if I can drill this down a little bit. So, um, like in the area of... um, banning books, for example, or in the area of saying, you know what, we're going to ban certain curriculums from being taught in the school because we don't like those curriculums. We disagree with those curriculums. And so we just want to just remove them from the equation. I think the thing that we as Christians tend to believe in some of that is that, you know what, it's a little bit like Israel and idols in the land. If you just knock down the idols, remove them from the landscape, the people are going to be fine. And I think when you're dealing with idols, there are certainly underpinnings of ideologies that reside behind those idols that in some ways, it's true that if you can just do that, um, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to see the next generation with these ideas. But if you also get over the top of all of that stuff in the Old Testament, you see they actually just really never were able to accomplish that. It's like it always reared its head. So the idea of you just remove something from the equation and therefore you've banished it, that never seemed to be all that authentically true. In fact, by the time idols were finally banished from the land, which is after the Babylonian exile, a whole new set of problems kind of entered in. And basically all it did was idolize God things. And so they dealt with a new form of idolatry, but in the name of Yahweh, as opposed to the old forms of idolatry that were in in the name of Baal and Moloch and all the other names that they had. So in reality, it never dealt with the core problem of the heart wants to manufacture idols and therefore the tools that need to be given for the heart to discern idol from truth needs to be tools of discernment, needs to be tools of interacting with ideas, seeing the pros and cons, the dangers and strengths, and then from that overlaying that with a like a higher truth, but with a working knowledge of the counter truths to that higher truth, right? So this is where discernment does play out. This is where you teach critical thinking skills. This is where you don't banish people from having access to ideas, but you want them to interact with those ideas, and then you want to show a better way. And and that's where I have this concern where Christians get really excited about, again, then banishing books and banishing banishing, uh, curriculum is we're not then endowing our children or ourselves even with like real critical thinking skills. Like I think about this with critical race theory, where there was a lot of people that were like really against it, but and I'm not saying everybody, I think there's some people that could really articulate critical race theory that were opposed to it. But most people, you kind of find that they they just know the name and they know it's not supported by their 
political ideology and they're against it, but they don't know the strengths and weaknesses of it. They don't even necessarily know the history of it. That this goes back, critical race theory goes back to the 70s. Like this isn't a new idea. This is sort of an old idea. And in there, there are things that even as a Christian trying to understand it, I go, well, man, we believe in total depravity. We believe that pride blinds you in your sin. We believe like there's things in critical race theory that I go, that is potently Christian theology inside of that, right? And then there's other things that are not. But if we can't identify that and we just throw all baby and bathwater out, then then there's a thing where it's like we didn't even try to interact with it so that we could then coach our high school level, college level kids to think critically about the topic, right? Like we just, we didn't have enough knowledge to think critically about the topic or books that we want to ban. You know, we go, we don't want to have to interact with those books, actually read those books, try to explain to people the the strengths and weaknesses, the dangers and the beauty of an idea. And even that's kind of hard where sometimes it's hard to admit that there are certain ideas and things out there that inside those things, there's nuances. So their conclusion may be destructive, but there's things that lead to the conclusion that we can learn from, grow from, and actually graft in or create new ideas that may be much healthier than the outcomes of the old ideas. But we have to do the process of critical thinking. We have to do the process of investigation. And we don't want to be reactive. We don't want to feel like my job is only to defend one idea and burn down the other side no matter what. No, we want to realize that we we, as people of faith, we live in the margins where we acknowledge that all the systems of this world, they contain, they contain shards of truth and air. They contain good ideas and bad ideas. And we're always trying to, to operate within those spaces to go, yes, this is good, but no, this is bad because that's more missionary thinking. Like if you think in terms of we're a Christian culture with a Christian identity and we need to get back to our Christian roots. Well, then, of course, you're probably going to think more in terms of book banning and curriculum banning and everything else. But if you think like a missionary, which is what I actually think we're more in the context of, missionaries don't go into cultures and just wholesale burn down everything because, well, paganism is the religion of their area. Or there's certain pagan ideas in their economic systems or in their social caste systems or whatever it is. No, we go in and we go like, man, I know I've got to enter into this space and find the good and leave the bad. And I need to be discerning in that. And and then I need to build relationships and that discernment and I use the things that they believe and I build on those things to take them in the direction of a newer, fresher truth, right? Like all of that has this then sensitivity to it. And I believe the same is required of us today, which is why, again, I'm not a fan of saying, let's just get rid of things, shut them away, don't let anybody have access to them. And that's the solution. I don't believe that solution. I, especially in the book banning one, I think it's interesting because I go, you know what? We got to remember we have a book that's been banned too, right? So as much as we're eager to see certain books banned because we go, we don't like that it pushes certain sexual ethics or moral ethics or religious ethics or political ethics or whatever it is, racial ethics, um, we need to be cautious in that because it should be a little bit more fair play. Like you bring your books to the table, we'll bring our book to the table. Now, I know some of us will say, yeah, but their books, some of those things promote really terrible ideas, but the Bible is God's word and it's a wholesome book. Well, I want to remind us that if um, put in the hands of somebody that's sort of untrained, uh, you take a person that has no background in the Bible and you hand them a Bible and they start reading their Bible, they're going to come across some things early on that would be very troubling to an outside world. They're going to come across all the different uh, moral things for which you are to be executed, right? So um, if you 
if you go out on Saturday and you gather wood for a fire, you're supposed to be executed. So working on the Sabbath was an execution stance. If you had a child that was disobedient, you could, you could kill your child. You could stone them to death. Uh, when you look at the Old Testament law standards, there's a lot of execution for a lot of things that seem, if you put it on today's standard, very barbaric. Um, you know, we see like in Numbers chapter six, I think it is, where uh, you know, there's a conquest and God's like, kill everybody but the girls that are virgins and you can take them home as kind of like a second wife or like some kind of extra female to hopefully provide you kids. Um, like, so five books into the Old Testament, you, you would be exposed to a lot of things that would look by today's standards is completely hideous, heinous, violent, sexist, perverse. Like all of that would be there to you because you don't have the New Testament to, to offset that yet. You haven't gotten that far. You haven't understood the ethic of Jesus. You don't understand how Jesus deals with the Old Testament in a whole new different way. And he becomes the the one that closes shop on that and starts shop on his kingdom values of the Sermon on the Mount and everything else. So what I'm saying is as much as we might be eager to ban a book because we go, we don't like its content, there's plenty of people eager to ban the Bible because they'd say its content is perhaps more vulgar than the content of the books that we're trying to ban today. And I go, from a certain point of view, if you didn't have somebody to work it through and explain to, to you know, kind of use the tools of discernment um, to discern through what the Bible's saying, right? Like, it would be easy to just want to cancel the Bible. Like, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is, as much as we're eager to want to cancel these other things, we have to remember that our Bible is very cancelable as well. And for good reason, if there isn't space to try to understand it and understand, hey, ancient culture versus a less ancient culture 2,000 years ago, certainly less ancient than the 3,000 years ago in the Mosaic period. And, and and so in that, you know, we just want to understand that, yeah, our book can be very, very misunderstood if there isn't somebody to to kind of guide us through it. And therefore, maybe their ideas, their books, and their curriculum can be easily misunderstood if there isn't somebody to guide you through it. Or maybe the intentions are exactly what they are. Well, we need to interact with those ideas, understand those ideas, and come up with better answers to the ideas that are being put out there. But we actually have to engage it, right? It, again, this is where I go. You don't want to ban it. You want to engage it. You don't want to hide from it. You want to interact with it. You don't want to just stand in, in opposition, but you want to be able to articulate what it is you're standing in opposition against. In fact, there's this great section in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. And you got to remember in this particular culture, not only were the worldly weapons going to be, you know, Roman swords and shields and, you know, things of that nature, chariots, but they also were incredibly keen in philosophy and logic and thought, right? This is a, a Greek culture that's been adopted by the Roman culture. You know, this is where we get a lot of the great philosophical ideas still to this day. And so, you know, th there is a worldly warfare that happens in all of that, that we have to kind of keep in mind too, right? So in this, though, we go like, I don't want to just simply engage at that level. No, we want to use mighty weapons to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. So again, the reason I like this is it's not saying banish the ideas. It's saying you need to interact with the ideas. You want to be able to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments by bringing a better argument, by bringing a better thought. He says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So right there, that idea of capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ, it's like you have to capture the idea. 
This is why you don't want to ban the idea. You want to capture the idea. So let's take sex curriculum in public schools. We just go, you know, I don't want my kid to learn anything, right? So you can't teach it. We don't want it there. And I'll teach my kid. I go, that is awesome. I would love it if Christian parents were thoroughly, deeply, authentically, detailedly teaching their kids. What so often would happen, and I saw this even in my growing up, it was like, let's get rid of this curriculum and then we're just going to tell our kids, wait till marriage. And like that was the teaching (laughs) or they got one talk and that was it. And, and I go, man, Song of Solomon is fantastic for this because it's constantly reminding like, man, you teach the, the young teen girls often, the young teen boys often about the details of all of this. You immerse them in it. You make it comfortable. You make it familiar. You, you, you celebrate its fun and you remind them not to awaken love too early and that there's so much there, right? And like that's the space we want to be in because I think that's taking a rebellious thought and capturing it and then teaching people to obey Christ because you can work in the nuances of all of that, right? But you have to the new, know the nuances and then in that be able to say, you might hear this and you might see this and you might be exposed to this. And can I tell you why all of those things are going to fall short or fall flat or not be as fulfilling or complete? There's a whole human dignity element behind this and we have to interact with all of that. And then from that, we're able to move forward and say, here's a higher idea of maybe doing life and here's why. Like, that's the way we want to do this. And that's why, again, I'm going to go back to the idea of just getting rid of is insufficient. Because if we ban exposure to ideas, um, curiosity is a powerful thing, right? It's like families that said, you know what, we're just going to tell our kids, you know, save yourself for marriage. And we're not going to let them be taught sex ed in school or whatever else. And we're really not going to teach them much sex ed except one talk and everything else. And And then you find that, you know, like they're getting educated by pornography, online chat rooms. I mean, you name it, like they're going to get their education elsewhere and it's all the wrong education. But if you didn't even teach them to navigate that, in other words, if porn is just don't do it and you didn't educate them about the nuances of pornography and all the different ways it can be harmful and, and why we understand that you're going to be curious and that's totally a biological trait that you have and you're regularly interacting with that and it's not like shameful and it's not awkward and it's not odd and it's not, you know, kind of shock worthy or whatever, but you're just trying to have healthy, decent, open conversation. Like if that doesn't happen, then it's kind of missing an opportunity because that's how you capture rebellious thoughts and then teach them to obey Christ, right? I love this in Colossians chapter four. He says, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. I'll tell you why I like this, right? Um, I, I think more than banning, we need to think in terms of compelling. Like, I don't want to ban ideas. I want to have ideas that are more compelling than the ideas that I would want banned. And I think that's part of the cheat in all of this where we go, but it's so hard to have a good argument, right? A compelling argument. It's much easier to just try to get rid of the counter argument so nobody ever has to be exposed to it. And therefore, I don't have to try to to defend my idea against that one. And I go, that's not the world we live in. In fact, that was one of the things I was thinking about when it comes to Hollywood over the last 40 years where, you know, we as Christians, we sort of complain or we point at the fact that Hollywood has been indoctrinating and all these things. And I go, what they've done is they've just been compelling, right? They've created compelling stories in a compelling format and and arguments that by way of music and character development and storyline and everything else has compelled generations to begin to move in a certain direction little by little. And the way we deal with that is not to say, you know what, Hollywood is just a bunch of rats and we need to just tell everybody to, to you know, I don't know, boycott Hollywood and boycott Disney and boycott, you know, all the different things that you want to boycott. 
No, what we need to do is do the hard work of having a more compelling story, a more compelling idea, a more compelling way of life, right? And I get it. That's much harder. But I think that's what we're called to. And that's why even in our conversations, even in the way we interact with counter ideas, if we're the gracious ones, if we're the attractive ones, that's a part of being compelling. Like, I think Christian niceness and kindness and care goes a long way in how we do our apologetic in the modern world, right? More than ideas versus ideas, I think it's disposition versus disposition, This is where even the whole kind of love wins model has been such a compelling idea, right? Where you have people that are on this particular social side, they're like, we're going to double down on the idea that we're more loving than maybe those who are of a more traditional caste or group. Um, And and it's that kind of thing that I think has been really winning a lot of their day. They just go, we're just more loving. We're just more welcoming. We're just more compassionate. We're just more, whether that's fully true or not, that's not what I mean. What I'm saying is the assumption, the, the sense of, of, of spirit that's been a, kind of captured in all of that is that they're more in that habitable space and that is a compelling space, right? Just the nicest person in the room can tend to win. Now, I also agree that the most caustic person in the room can win, but they have to be caustic to your cause. And this is where I go back to caustic people. For your cause, we can love them because that's right. There are brute that goes out there and fights for our cause, but they don't win converts through that, right? They, they, they win the choir. They win their own crowd, but they don't win converts, but we're missionaries. Our job is converts, right? So this is why we want to be gracious and attractive. Or I think about First Peter chapter 3. He says, now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry about it or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about the hope that you have as a believer, always be ready to what? Explain it. So again, we're in that space of explaining, articulating, compelling, wooing, winning over, right? Like that's the thing we want to do. We don't want to banish ideas. We won't want to just critique and criticize books or curriculum or school boards or districts or whatever else. That's easy. That's low-hanging fruit. Anybody can be a critic. Not anybody can be a creator, right? And that's what we're called to. I mean, go back to Genesis chapter one. We're called to be creators. I still believe in the current climate, we're meant to create ideas. We're meant to create compelling, um, life-giving, flourishing ideas. And yes, against ideas of decay, all the more we need to come up with an alternative and an option that is a better one, not just it's a commanded one, but show why the command is better, why the idea is better. That's what we do, which is why we, again, don't want to burn, banish, just bludgeon ideas, but rather we want to bring people into a new way of thinking, right? So we want to be ready to explain it. He says, but do this, in a gentle and respectful way. See, it all comes back around to that. So more than demanding that certain ideas be removed, more than demanding that certain certain curriculums, they stop, more than demanding that you know certain ideologies be shelved, we need to say, no, I want to understand those better than anybody. I want to have nuance in my conversation better than everybody. I want to see that, yes, there is good to be gleaned in many of these things. And then there are warnings to be aware of. And then I want to paint a more beautiful portrait of what really can be the texture and tempo of a society. And from that, see flourishing in our world. 
because that's still the promise that's in play. God wants to bring blessing to the nations. We are the instruments of that blessing and we can't keep drawing lines and picking sides and rejecting these ideas and endorsing our ideas, but our ideas aren't really that compelling, right? We need to have ideas that really are thought through, thoughtful, can interact with the counter idea, show the weakness of that and the strength of ours. And from that, we create a fuller, better future. See, I think that's the stuff of being a missionary in today's climate. It is work. It is effort. We can't do all the heavy lifting alone. It's going to take a whole team kind of being thoughtful in these ways. But thoughtful is the key. Thoughtful and attractive and gracious and gentle and respectful. Not the worldly weapons, but mighty spiritual weapons. Weapons of the Holy Spirit where love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and that wonderful list is all a part of our disposition as we bring forth the ideas. And I think the more we're committed to that, the more we strive for that and fight for that, the more we will be better everyday missionaries.